0: so that said, I hope you enjoy today's episode. Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Strategy Skills Podcast brought to you by Firms Consulting. Now, in today's episode, I want to touch on startups, because it's probably one of the hottest topics around the world today. And I think just about every client we've had at some point is considered either launching a startup or joining a startup or doing something in the startup space. There are very few people, I think, who has the track record of Tom Eisenman. He's got a phenomenal track record in terms of being a Harvard Business School professor teaching in the innovation space and so on. And you can look up his background. But there is one thing that I find that makes him unique and why I wanted him on the program. There are many of us who read articles about startups and their founders. Some of them are quite in-depth exposés and pieces that really make you feel as if you know the authors. Tom is one of the few people who actually does know the founders because in many of his pieces of work, whether it's case studies and so on, particularly his latest books, he case studies people or students that he taught at the Harvard Business School who went on to then found startups. So he provides this dissection of the psychology and the mechanics of failure and success He can really provide quite a unique perspective because he's already formed an opinion of the person to some degree while they were a student versus forming an opinion of them only after he started analyzing the failure in the startup, which is largely shaded by the fact that the startup failed. So it's a very unique perspective because most time to read about some founder or co-founder and so on, it's because they've either achieved something of great importance or of great failure. And a reporter has been assigned to find out what happened with the preconception. And I find Tom's writing is quite balanced in that sense, whereby you get an appreciation for what the person has gone through without any judgment. But at the same time, he's very good at breaking down the mechanics while things failed, and it's very insightful and counterintuitive things, especially the example of why the pet daycare center failed. That's very insightful. If you're interested in the startup space particularly if you're going to think how to learn critically, I think this is one of the better podcasts we have. As always, I hope you enjoyed. Welcome, Tom. It's a pleasure to have you on the show.
1: Thank you. Delighted to be here. Thank you for hosting.
0: So you've been doing some very interesting work at the Harvard Business School around why startups fail. And you've put out some interesting papers, case studies, many of them actually. You've even trained some of our previous clients and your new book discusses this. Now I can ask you many, many things, but I want to get into, maybe as a starting point, why you felt a new book was needed on startups? because there's so much written about it
1: yeah there's um thousands and thousands of books about entrepreneurship many of them are about entrepreneurial success stories and many of them are about entrepreneurs like richard branson yeah. or elon musk or steve jobs and unfortunately we can't all be a- amazing entrepreneurs like yeah. them So mere mortals have to figure out how to do it. And of course, there's some good guidance on how to succeed as an entrepreneur, but there's surprisingly little that's written about how to avoid failure Mm -hmm. and if you fail, how to fail well. There's some fascinating first-person accounts and books or articles or case studies that focus on Individual failures, but most of those don't make any effort to generalize beyond that single case to the broader questions. And so, what I've done in the book is looked for recurring failure patterns that seem to affect a large portion of startups. And with those insights, then uh, offer some guidance for entrepreneurs on how to understand whether they're vulnerable to those failure patterns and do the best they can to avoid them.
0: It's not just the book, I think um, also your case studies are very, very interesting. Let's jump into something that I found unique in the way you write. You have a unique view of having interacted with many of the people you write about when they were students before they had the idea to launch a business. So you almost have a viewpoint of them before they have the idea. Once they have the idea and some of them sounded off you and then you have the privilege, I would say, of being able to interview them and talk to them once they've been through that whole journey. Do you feel that gives you a unique perspective? Because I felt like I was sitting there and we were having whiskey on a Sunday and you were you know, recounting these amazing stories. But the, the amount of depth you had into the psychology of the people was very unique.
1: Thank you for that. I, I do think it gives some special insight on, on the case studies that are in the book and, and others that I've, I've written. From, I, I teach an MBA elective on mm-hmm. entrepreneurial mm-hmm. failure. And it features, as, as pretty much everything we do at Harvard Business School, it, it is case method yes. based. Yes, and it's true. Um, not all of the case studies in the book are former students, but a few of them are. And in those instances, I did get to know the students very well before when their venture was not even a glimmer in their yeah. eye before they had it. And I do think that's important in understanding failure. I mean, so much of failure is relates to the entrepreneur's character, their strengths and weaknesses, their ego and their resilience in the face of, of setbacks and so forth. So getting to know a person uh, before they've taken the plunge and, and by the way, sort of, you, you know, beginning, middle and end. Um, in some of these cases, I was an investor in the startup. So yeah. I felt the pain in, <laughs> You had in, in the, in, in to explain to your the, the wife what happened magnetic, to the investment. Some, some <laughs> small pain uh, personally.
0: <laughs> so I want to get into one of the cases because they were very interesting. The one about Baroo, which yeah. is the um, pet care company. I found that to be very interesting because Most times when you think about startups, um, it's like the example you gave of that talking robot earlier, something that's heavily infused with technology. But here was a business which is offering a service. Uh, And it's still a startup. But I want to get into the part about a false positive at the beginning, because I think it's really common. And in their case, they had almost a perfect storm of false positives. Let's talk through that, because I want the audience to not just have a superficial level, but to get in some of the mechanics of how we make bad decisions by getting incorrect prompts.
1: For the audience, Baru was launched in 2014 by an entrepreneur named Lindsay Hyde. She had just graduated from Harvard Business School, had had a, a traumatic experience with her own pet. She and her husband were off for a trip. They placed their pet with a, a pet sitter, and then yeah. when they tried to contact that person from out of town, the pet sitter was nowhere to be found. It just simply wasn't responding to any emails or, yes. or phone calls or so forth. And it turns out the pet sitter had handed the pet off to a friend or, yeah, or, or very relative. common,
0: I believe. Yes.
1: Yeah. Um, but you can imagine um, if you're in Florida and, and you, you don't know where your dog yes. is in Boston or can't communicate how agonizing it was. So Lindsay resolved there must be a better way. And she worked first on a notion of pet care at office premises mm-hmm. and it turned out that was something that people said they would do but when you actually asked them to do it she offered to actually come to harvard and pet sit for harvard university employees and no one took her up on it, an offer of 20 a day for a day of pet sitting And people just don't want it if they're yes. driving to work or taking the bus to work too many hassles better yes. to leave your pet at home and have somebody come into the house and get it so sure her next idea was Why don't we move the the daycare, if you will, into luxury apartment buildings so we can do this closer to home? And there was a lot of interest in that concept. Some of your readers may know of services uh, WAG and Rover, which are essentially Internet companies that match uh, folks who need pet care with care providers, walkers and groomers and so forth. And so Lindsay, her spin on that idea was the marketing will come through luxury apartment. Somebody will move into the building. They're new to town. They don't have a solution for how to take care of Rover, and uh, the concierge in the building would refer the new tenant to Baru. Uh, by the way, Baru is—it's a wonderful name. It's one of my favorite startup names ever. Yeah. It's the name for the movement when a dog tilts its head in response to a, a human's voice, trying to understand what the humans trying to do. That's called a Baru.
0: I did not and know so, that. I learned something new yeah, today. Thank I you, Tom.
1: It. So. Lindsay organized this business. She did what we would consider good upfront research, Mm -hmm. studied the market and did the survey work and talked to a lot of potential customers, launched the business. Her first client, the first apartment building, was a building called the Ink Block in Boston. Mm -hmm. It's in a uh, up and coming neighborhood in Boston. It was the old headquarters of the Boston Herald newspaper. So big building, 400 units um, or thereabouts. And it had been converted from those that former use into condominiums all at once. So 400 units all filled up simultaneously. And furthermore, the perfect storm you talk about, a large number of the original tenants were part of a Hollywood movie crew that was in Boston for months and months filming on location with big per diems, 15-hour days, and they brought their pets, right, because they were going to be there for a long time. So lots of money to pay for pet care and and no solution because they were in from out of town. And then the third thing that happened was Mother Nature dumped uh, I don't know if uh, most of your listeners will be in meters, th- uh, three meters yeah. no worth of snow in 30 days. So if you had a pet walking service, a dog yes. walking service, uh, you were gonna do a lot of business. And other buildings heard about this fantastic new concierge pet service, pet care service, and reached out to Baru. and and Baruch signed up immediately a bunch of other buildings. And here's the rub, though. Because they signed up yeah. five, ten 10 buildings quickly in advance in Boston, Uh, they then were able to follow the building owners had buildings in other cities. So they quickly launched in Chicago as a second city, thinking that that would be the ticket to raise venture capital. And the false positive comes from the fact that Ink block filled up all at once with people who didn't have a solution in the neighborhood. Most buildings turn over about a quarter of their tenants yeah. per year. Three quarters will stay you know, for an average of four years or something like that. And people who are in the building already have a solution. They found some way and you tend to not switch away from if you've given your keys to somebody, you trust them enough to come into your apartment. You're not going to switch easily away from that working solution. So customers came much less quickly in yeah. the other buildings than they did in this first one. And while the company grew and it had an appealing solution, it didn't grow nearly as fast as, as they originally expected based on the false positive.
0: Well, let's just dive into this. Right? There's a lot of interesting things here about human psychology. Clearly, the team that put this together liked dogs. They liked what they were offering. Uh, it seemed to me they were not just doing it for the money, but they really felt they were offering a service. And it, it's fairly obvious they probably knew their initial clients fairly well because they were in one building. Knowing all of this, how could they have missed that these were once in a sort of lifetime events that were driving the sales at the first building? It's possible they missed it, but why wouldn't the board have focused on understanding those assumptions?
1: In retrospect, to ask people these questions. So I've asked these yes, very same of course questions. Questions. But unfair yeah. as well, yeah. right? I think I believe the answers, but um, we should be careful with retrospective recollections. So uh, Lindsay would say, I think acknowledge that we as humans see what we want to see. And when she got this strong response, this this very strong demand, it was easy to believe that was going to be replicated, number one. And number two, you're just so busy as an entrepreneur everything is new and everything nothing exists right it's sort of you pull the venture together every person you hire every every process you put in place is brand new so it's hard to find the time to sit back and reflect about what's going Mm -hmm. on so i think just the sheer velocity of of events and the uh, need to do so much makes it hard to to actually scrutinize what's going on so we see what we want to see and and we don't look carefully when we're busy Regarding the investors and Lindsay, her original intention was to grow slowly, I would Mm -hmm. say, grow at a pace that would allow her to fund expansion from city to city with the profits earned in the first city, fund the next one. And she recruited a set of investors, who angel investors, um, who in theory were in sync with that plan. They had an expectation of earning medium returns, if you will, maybe not not sort of 500 to one, you know, sort of Facebook scale returns um, over a fairly long period of time, say three to five years, not a, not a quick flip. And then a thing that clearly happened, according to Lindsay, and it, and it rings very true, is that uh, she and they, when they saw the initial early growth yeah. and the opportunity to expand to other cities and and if they could continue to build the business successfully in other cities, then raise venture capital to scale the thing up further, they were seduced by the opportunity to now pursue venture capital scale returns. But that was not the original plan, so mm-hmm. it was a shift. There's actually a quote in the book and in the um, case we use in the classroom uh, where she describes the investors as schizophrenic, You know, on the one yes, hand, wanting that. the safe returns that they originally signed yeah. up for, on the other hand, being intrigued by um, by the chance that they may hit a venture capital-style home run. It
0: struck me as as if she was surprised by that, as opposed to not realizing this is human nature. People want to be safe and they want big returns at the same time. And almost as the CEO, it's her job to anticipate that, expect that. It's almost as if she's got to run the company, manage everything and coach her investors at the same time. And it's not a knock on Lindsay. I think she, you know, it's what she did is quite impressive. It's almost as if, as very smart people, you know, graduates of Harvard Business School and so on, we know that things don't work rationally, but it's when we're in a startup, we expect things to work according to a plan and we ignore those irrational signals we are getting.
1: Yeah, so much of being an entrepreneur is confidence inverging. Um, there's plenty of research that shows that entrepreneurs compared to the general public are overconfident yeah and Lindsay was a serial entrepreneur she'd actually after college or d- during college and then for eight years afterward built a very successful social impact startup, um, yeah. strong women strong girls which uh, mentored middle school girls by by young adults she had startup experience this is not somebody who's naive to the rhythms and, and pressures of entrepreneurship
0: Yes. And that's the striking thing about so many of these people that were in your class or you've tracked is that, you know, for for the average person, you get beaten down once. They never want to get up again. They just want to get a normal job. And many of these people, (laughs) they faced whether they were successful or average success, according to them, they they seem as if they want to be in this career path of launching a business and solving some problem and making people happy. It's not about whether or not this succeeds. It's the fact that they always want to be building something.
1: I was curious to see um, with failed founders how many of them would, um, if you will, get back on the horse and ride again. I took for the book just a random slice of 50 founders who looked pretty similar and, and failed all in 2015, and asked if um, in the ensuing five years they had founded again. I've since I've since replicated yeah. this analysis with a with a bigger sample, but the the basic pattern holds. So it turns out that exactly half of my sample of, of entrepreneurs who, these are entrepreneurs who had raised at least a half million dollars and their startup failed in 2015. And so they had um, another five years, if you will, to do it again. And half of them did, which is really kind of striking. That's a amazing. 50%. And
0: um,
1: And it didn't turn out, if you take the 50 and then sort them into whether they had previously been entrepreneurs prior to the focal failure, half of them had and half of them hadn't. So, half of the failed founders were serial entrepreneurs, half were first time entrepreneurs, and again, the refounding rate um, after two thousand and fifteen yes. was the same for those groups. So, I think we can safely call this a career calling. These are yes. people who again, you know, as you say, sort of knock down, dust yourself off, get up, and do it for a whole bunch of reasons you know i I wouldn't be surprised if some people want to prove after a failure that they can do it Absolutely. I'm sure that a lot of entrepreneurs want to change the world. I know that a lot of them are motivated just by the satisfaction that comes from uh, building a thing, something out of nothing, putting a new thing in the world, building the team and and hopefully having some impact.
0: So let's switch gears a little bit and talk about um, the case example you had of, I think it's called Jibu, the electronic device, which I I really liked reading that story and what they were trying to do. And I could see that being something that uh, families could um, relate to. I could see it serving a need I mean, in countries like Japan, whereby people are, many more people are older and lonely. This could be a unifying center for them. And I felt a little bit of sadness when you know, they launched. And of course they made some missteps like everyone else, but just sheer unluck that Amazon comes into the market. And you know Amazon controls that market. Yeah. But we, we don't talk enough about the factor of luck in launching a business. So you can do all this analysis, but how do, you, how do you cope with that? What are the coping mechanisms? Is, is there anything to cope with that?
1: So I use the Jibo case. So Jibo, for the listeners, is a social robot. Mm -hmm. It was um, invented by Cynthia Brazil, who's a professor at the MIT Media Lab. And she's the pioneer of social robotics, robots that forge an emotional connection to humans. Spent her whole career studying it. it as you mentioned sort of in service to the elderly, sort mm-hmm. of companionship. She's used robots to engage autistic children who, who otherwise would have trouble connecting with a human. They turn out they will um, forge an emotional bond yes. with the robot and lots of similar applications. So I use Jibo in the book to raise this question about failure being a result of either mistakes or misfortunes, bad mm-hmm. luck, to your point about luck or both. There clearly are examples of startups that are all about mistakes. They're not hard to find. Tens of thousands of examples of startups that failed really due to no fault of the founder. Bad luck. It was bad luck to start a restaurant two years ago. And uh, if you go back to the Great Recession, again, you know, tens of thousands of startups wiped out by a, a colossal dislocation in, in the macroeconomy. We can call them good failures if you like. The chapter explores the question of is there yeah. such a thing as a good failure? Mm-hmm. And I come to the conclusion in the chapter that there are a couple of categories of good failure. One is if the entrepreneur made reasonable assumptions. Predicated the business on those assumptions and they just didn't play out and they had done as much research as you could possibly do for For example, there are a whole bunch of clean tech businesses launched in the after 2005 before 2010 that were predicated on a continuing increase in the price of fossil fuels. Yeah And along comes fracking and energy, fossil fuel energy becomes really cheap and biofuels businesses fail and solar comes under pressure and so forth. So hard to fault those entrepreneurs for mistakes. Um, They may have made mistakes, but they were subject to severe misfortune. The other category of good failure is a good experiment. right? The lean startup idea is you state your hypotheses, your assumptions um, in the manner of a scientist and come up with a test, an experiment rigorous but wasting no more resources than necessary uh, to quickly validate your assumptions. And sometimes people make uh, reasonable assumptions and they run the test and it turns out, uh, no, the assumption was wrong. And, and if you've done that without wasting resources as fast as you can um, with rigor and with eyes wide open, sort of avoiding false yes. positives and so forth, that's a good failure too. So the question for the readers and for my students when we teach the Jibo case is, is Jibo a good failure? it's uh, a victim of misfortune as you say amazon launched uh, the echo which is Mm -hmm. the hardware that hosts Alexa, their voice assistant no one saw that coming right we we expected that things like alexa and siri would be built into phones but no one saw the smart speakers coming and that they'd be scattered around the house and so forth this is one of the things jibo was doing two things and uh, jibo was gendered so he he was a he Um, had the personality of a 10-year-old boy. Jibo was meant to make these um, social connections. What was distinctive, very different than than, say Alexa or Siri is Jibo would actually initiate a conversation. It would learn about you and would strike, you know, Michael, um, I told you this morning the traffic was gonna be heavy on your commute. Mm -hmm. How did that go? And became uh, very much a member of the family. And so that was one thing. And and Alexa and Siri don't do anything like that, of course, at least not now. And then the second was an assistant, a personal assistant, um, read you your email, serve as an egg timer if you're cooking, et cetera, et cetera. And Alexa, for $200 Echo, Um, compared to $900 for a Jibo would do these assistant functions for just a a small fraction of the price and and took that market away from Jibo. So it was a a real misfortune. They couldn't have seen it coming. But on the other hand, the Jibo management team made what they would acknowledge to be some mistakes. It took a long time to actually build Jibo, and it wasn't hardware issues. People think the, the hardware was dazzling. Uh, Jibo could, uh, on a stationary base, move around in ways yeah. that made him look like he was dancing. Uh, he could twerk. Um, <laughs> and the hardware was uh, not straightforward, but yeah. was, um was well managed. The software just turned out to be enormously difficult to develop as you're taking input sensors in and out of the robot and processing them very quickly and, and then telling the robot what to do in response. It took two or three times as long to complete that work as they thought. So they were late. They'd run a crowdfunding campaign through Indiegogo and got a lot of people angry and disappointed. So a mix of mistakes and misfortunes. And then to back to the issue of good failure. It is intriguing. We can ask a failure from whose perspective? Yes. From the founder's perspective, from the investor's perspective, from society's perspective. If we take a social lens here, Jibo served as the model for other robots that today are, mm-hmm. are still targeting the elder care market and doing so with some success. So if you paved the way, if you're the pioneer um, who caught the early arrows, does that make you somehow a good failure if, if there's social contributions that weren't realized by the investors? Obviously, they can't monetize that. So the case in the book is used to raise those types of questions, and and we do the same thing in the classroom. Some of my students think it's just obvious it was a failure because it lost $75 million. Others say not so fast.
0: Well, it's as you say, it depends on the lens and the viewpoint you take. And coming back to this, building on what you said, so when I used to work as a partner advising CEOs, one of the things we always were very clear about is that in corporate strategy, you are taking a bet on where a market will go. You don't know where a market is going to go. If you're deciding you're going to double down and acquire a company that makes gas turbines, you're betting the market for gas turbines is going to be big in 5 to 10 years. And it's very easy to see that when you're putting down $10 billion, $20 billion, $30 billion. It's a bet. How much appreciation is there in the mindset of an entrepreneur that they are betting on where a market is going to go? It's not certain where it's going to go.
1: So there are overconfident entrepreneurs... Many of them, you know, they think they can see around corners. So I would say that they probably are more overconfident about a a positive scenario for the future than they should be. You know, again, as society, we ought to scratch our heads and ask, do we want it any other way? Um, if they were realistic
0: and nothing realistic
1: about whether the market's going to unfold the way they want or, <laughs> yeah. or whether their venture is going to succeed, no one would do this. Yes. So as a, as a human race needs overconfident entrepreneurs to take the plunge um, and, and, and explore the paths, you know, let's leave the pasture we've been in for the last 40,000 years and sort of see what's over the hills.
0: So another uh, viewpoint you took, which I thought was interesting, is that your work in this the book primarily is built around failures and near failures and when I was sifting through other titles on Amazon to get a sense of what had been written, most of it is invariably about successes. And we can talk about why you spoke about near failures and you mentioned why, but one of the things I noticed is that when a startup or a company, which was a startup becomes successful, if you listen to the early interviews of that founder, which I did do for Facebook, by the way, and then you listen to what they say 10 years later, they've built a much more sophisticated narrative about why they succeeded. But if you listen to the failures, they haven't had a time to build that sophisticated narrative. And they tend to be a bit more circumspect, and I would say a bit more sincere about what really happened. So when I was reading about the failures and the near failures, I'm not going to say dishonesty, but I found that there was no time for them to craft a narrative. It was just honest and raw about what had happened. It was much more interesting to read versus successes that were written 10 years after the success.
1: With the successes there are so many myths about yes. the early days. I think if you dig deep, you'll find that most successful startups have an origin myth, yeah. like Adam and Eve. The entrepreneurs, the founders who failed have had less time to reconstruct that reality. I think, though, what you often see, so somebody has the confidence to put their narrative into the public domain, is going to be in a thoughtful range. Yes. and And it turns out that failed founders a line on a spectrum that that goes from one extreme is citing misfortunes. Basically, um, if your listeners have taken a psychology course, one of the most important things you learn in, in, a, in an introductory psychology course is about the fundamental attribution error. And the fundamental attribution error basically says, if you did something wrong, I will conclude it was your lack of skill or motivation. If I do something wrong, I was a, a, a unfortunate victim of circumstances out of my control yeah. so, you know it cut off by a bmw you think that person's a self-centered jerk yes. if you accidentally cut somebody off it's yeah. the blind spot yeah. in your in your car's mirror and first person narratives about failure are, are full of attribution errors so you get at one extreme the the founder who basically blames everything Mm -hmm. and everyone except for themselves. They they blame fellow. My co-founder dropped the ball. My VC pushed me to grow when I shouldn't have been growing. The regulators changed the rules. My competitor was irrational. Um, You name it. Anything but a pattern of mistakes that I made with strategy, um, organization, or operations. And at the other extreme, unfortunately, too many founders who include, based on the failure, the incredibly painful failures, that they were fundamentally ill-suited for the role. They never should have been an entrepreneur in the first place and they never should do it again. Mm -hmm. Now, there are some individuals who really shouldn't be entrepreneurs. They're just not suited for the role. And there are some who really were the victim of circumstances, but usually the reality is somewhere in the middle, right? There's a mix of misfortune and and plenty of mistakes. And usually the individual in question um, is the architect of the venture, therefore chiefly responsible for the mistakes if an employee dropped the ball, you hired that employee. So, so um, it comes back and reflects on you. If the market filled up with competitors too quickly, you made the decision and, and should have thought through the consequences there.
0: So in thinking through the examples you used, which are very riveting, I would say, one of the things that I want readers to understand, because I, I can see readers and listeners thinking, well, this is a group that went to the Harvard Business School. It's a self-selected group how do I adjust some of this um, very interesting ideas and advice for my circumstances when I'm not part of that pool? Are there adjustments Uh, needed?
1: Yes, there are um, seven anchor cases in the book. Just seven? Yeah, anchor. Well, there are many companies mentioned, but seven case studies that I develop in depth. Four of them are indeed Harvard Business School graduates there's a stanford business school yeah. graduate, so not okay that so difficult. it's a
0: very privileged group and yeah, in, in a negative yeah. sense i mean you know they went to great uh-huh. schools
1: yeah. and, the, so, and the listener so,
0: group is going to be global
1: yes i would say two things the students i teach assume reflexively that venture capital is the way to go mm-hmm. we lionize venture capital at harvard business school and yeah. i think at all top business schools around the world and of course, not everybody has access to venture capital. More importantly, venture capital is not for every entrepreneur, right? A venture capitalist makes money by getting an enormous, a 20-fold return on, on a small fraction of the companies in their portfolio. They might have 50 companies in the portfolio and three of them will be gigantic winners. And 20 will go sideways, you know, get their money back, and then the balance will lose everything. And that works fine for the VC because they've averaged the big returns and the losses out over a portfolio. The entrepreneur only has one shot. And because of that business model, the VC is going to push you to swing hard, you know, try to knock the ball out of the ballpark to use a, a U.S. baseball metaphor. And that's not for every entrepreneur. It's not for every business. So I think your listeners actually have an advantage in the sense that uh, they may be candidates for venture capital, but they're more likely to just fall by by muscle memory, by reflex into the pattern of taking venture capital yeah. when maybe they should But the, the offset to that is, of course, in the world of entrepreneurship, a lot of investing follows privilege, if you will. Mm-hmm. So many entrepreneurs find it easier to take the plunge if they have life circumstances that provide a cushion if your parents can bail you out if they can raise the first couple hundred thousand dollars from friends and family most entrepreneurs around the world won't have that opportunity they're going to have to bootstrap and they're going to have to try to build the business toward positive cash flow Mm -hmm. um, faster than some of these VC-backed businesses that I've looked at in the book. That all said, so I think that's an important theme to recognize as as we look at the lessons in the book. Still, the failure patterns in the book, I would say every entrepreneur, no matter how they finance, the false positive is a risk that Mm -hmm. anyone can run into. The overconfidence that comes with being an entrepreneur is something that every entrepreneur is vulnerable to, um, regardless of their circumstances.
0: Yes. So you're saying that it's relative. I mean, they're going to face it to different degrees, but they're going to face those things. But the part about making the assumption that VC is the only route is something that listeners need to think for themselves. It may not be the best route, or even if it's a good route to raise money for their business, personality-wise, they may not be suited to work with VCs who are really looking for breakout success to balance their portfolios.
1: Yeah, exactly.
0: Okay, very good. So let's shift gears a little bit here, right? You talked about near misses. Now, I've never seen a book write about near misses. And your logic you use is the the organization looks at uh, air safety incidences in the United States. Rather than waiting to study a crash, which would be an appalling way to run a business, they would rather look for near misses and see what they could learn from and extrapolate from that. Do you feel that the near misses give you a a bit deeper understanding than the actual failures because there's no shortage of failures in startups
1: when um, two planes nearly collide those instances get documented very carefully and they're used to train pilots and air traffic controllers and what's particularly valuable about the near miss is it was a miss so we see why the entity in question was getting into trouble uh, but we also see what saved the day and so you've, you've armed the student who, st- who studies the near-miss with a toolkit. My entire book, mm-hmm. I'm Exploring the Failures, does that. But wherever I can, I try to pull examples of the near-miss. You know, an example that might make it come to life is Dropbox. So Dropbox yes. has a couple of near-misses. I don't think either of these would have killed the company. The, the company had such a powerful yeah. concept yeah. and so well-executed that I think it was destined for success. But if we look at the false positive pattern, in many cases, it, it stems from early adopters having different needs than the mainstream customers. In Lindsay's case, uh, Baru, um, the early adopters, it was just a completely different kind of apartment building than, than the ones she would face after that. But in Dropbox case, when he launched the product, Drew Houston launched the product mm-hmm. he, or was researching the product, his research base was uber geeks, right? I mean, really sophisticated computer users who had needs from a file management service that normals like us, I don't know about you, but um, (laughs) I wouldn't have had these needs. And it would have been very tempting for Drew to build a product that met those needs, really sophisticated features. And every entrepreneur is going to be tempted to do that because you need early adopters to get going. But it would have been over-engineered for the mainstream. It would have been confusing for mainstream users. So Drew, in a very savvy way, um, made a bet that his product would be sufficiently superior to what else was already out there, that the early adopters, despite it not having all the features they'd love to see, they still would adopt it. And then he'd have a product that would work for the mainstream. So he avoided the false positive. He, in a sense, avoided a near miss. Yes. Did the same thing by thinking carefully when when Dropbox um, some years later, many years later, uh, decided it wanted to offer a product for teams Mm -hmm. and big corporations. The quick response would have been just let's build the team to build the team's product, build and sell it. Mm -hmm. And that team would have had. A whole bunch of salespeople on it. And Dropbox sold itself for many years to individual customers. So there were no people inside the corporation that looked like sales. Salespeople are loud. Um, They're extroverted. They're the quintessential opposite of um, what had culturally dominated Dropbox up to that point, which is, um, you know, amazing engineers who... Uh, just want to code and put the headphones on and, and and stay in the zone. And the management team at Dropbox, I think, thought very carefully about the cultural impact of broadening the employee base to include marketing and salespeople and, and what that would do. So it was just by taking the extra time to think through the cultural ramifications of this move to, into this new product line, they avoided trouble. Well,
0: there's a lot of insights there, but let's start with the one with Drew Houston, right? When he launched Dropbox, he picked the advanced users. When you and I talk about advanced users, it's very hard to get an appreciation of what that is, so I dug up on YouTube, one of the original ad videos, and it's only when you listen to that video, do you understand who he's talking to? Because the language is so technically specific that it's going to turn off the average consumer. The average consumer is not going to relate to that. Maybe you have some insight into this, but here you have this company backed by VC money. Even if not backed by VC money, there's a lot riding on the line here. I can be sure that there's tension within the camps whereby some are saying, we've got to go mainstream and there's another group saying, no, we've got to understand our market. We've got to start here. We've got to iron out the bugs. We've got to build a loyal, raving fan base that's going to draw in users by word of mouth. Once we've exhausted that, tested it, we know it works. Then we can think of the best way to allocate funds to go after adjacent markets talk us through your experience in helping founders make those trade-offs at the beginning
1: yeah tricky trade-off because you're right um you know i think the conventional wisdom would be that you as an entrepreneur should pursue a very narrow slice of the market and engineer and design a product that will in an overwhelmingly powerful way meet the needs of that narrow segment and then expand from there that's not what dropbox did Mm -hmm. um i don't have insight I i picked up the story with Drew in 2010 Mm -hmm. and I've never asked him about those um, lonely days if you will when it was just yes he made this decision when there was a team of two um, Drew and Arash um, his co-founder and I would actually be surprised if they had they were a Y Combinator company so they went Mm -hmm. through the Y Combinator Accelerator and they'd have gotten excellent mentorship there but in my experience the kind of mentorship you get in a program like that, or from life in general, is subject to a phenomenon that entrepreneurs and the people who work with them call mentor whiplash. Mm -hmm. So at a Techstars accelerator or a Y Combinator accelerator, an entrepreneur will be exposed to dozens of mentors and present the opportunity and the problem and the potential solution to those dozens and we'll get not quite dozens of different views on how to proceed, but I promise you, more than more than a yes. single consensus. And it's the entrepreneur's job to sort through that and have the strength and confidence to separate signal from noise um, and to chart a path, knowing, back to your point about sort of uh, irreducible uncertainty, that, that you're making a bet in the face of that uncertainty. And again, not everybody is suited for that, so the Advisors, whether they be investors or, or coaches and mentors in the, in the case of an accelerator, they don't own the problem, the yes. opportunity. Uh, they don't own the decision. So it, it really comes down to the entrepreneur. And again, the danger with the entrepreneur is that they don't even listen to the input, right? They're so hell bent um, pursuing a vision they've had, a vision burning bright. They just know it's the right way to go that they ignore the input together. At the other extreme, entrepreneurs who really are whipsawed by the mentors and, you know, they will change their strategy four times a day after having four conversations with smart people who have different views. And the great entrepreneurs will find some space in between, take the input in, make the best of it, and then um, take a calculated bet.
0: Yes. And I mean, of course there are those who will try to do everything and nothing really works because they've divided resources, right? So right. we live in an age, you know, I remember when I first started launching a website many years ago, what a painful process it was to collect payments online. It was not easy and right? it was really difficult. Today, it's much more easier than it's ever been. So if you're in the United States, Boston, as you are, you can scale and serve the world. If you're in Nairobi, you can scale and serve the world. Um, I remember reading uh, a piece by Marissa Mayer who, as you probably know was very senior at Google and there was a story about her there uh, which says that when she went home to her apartment she made sure that she had a dial-up connection at home so that she could experience what users in Indonesia, India, Kenya, Egypt were experiencing when they used Google and she made sure that there was always something to bring her back down to earth and test what she's rolling out so my question to you is in an age when we can scale so rapidly How do we keep our ear to the ground of what our users in some far-flung part of the world is going to need? Because today everyone wants to build some app that goes global, some website that goes global. But if you're sitting in Boston, London, anywhere in the world, you tend to be getting soundboard, sound bites from people who are very similar to you. And my thought was, how do you know you're building something that serves a global need? I mean, it's a, maybe an unfair question Tom. and i no, no, I, I, uh,
1: I I see the question uh, I'm thinking back to Dropbox. we were just talking um, early on, Dropbox, because it was free, yeah. it had global appeal,, yes. and t- two thirds of their users, pretty much right from the start, probably still true today, um were outside the u s mm-hmm. What I don't know, I wish I knew um, I love this I love the Marissa Mayer story is how the Dropbox team did a pretty good job of staying close to real customers mm-hmm. and how they experienced the product and used the product. They would invite people off the street sort of with a promise of pizza, et cetera, yeah. and have them install the product you know, before everybody had Dropbox and you know, wonderful stories about how uh, you know in 45 minutes they would note 70 different problems that people yes. had and learn and then take that away to the engine and then do it again and find another big batch of problems. So much harder to do that overseas. But you know, I've, I've 40% of our students at Harvard Business School are from out of the US and yeah. many many of them from emerging markets, developing countries. And uh, they're aspiring entrepreneurs and when they build their business, they've got to reach back home, yeah. um, if home is Indonesia or, um, or Kenya. And figure out ways to we push 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 aspiring entrepreneurs to um, really explore customer needs, and and we're talking over Skype right now. Skype works all around the world, so um, yeah. Um, I mean, people on the receiving end need an internet connection, and of course, lots too many people don't have that. But I think the very tools that made it, as you said, easy to launch, are making it easier to reach around the world and for entrepreneurs to to get a sense for. What's the same in terms of needs if they happen to be developing in the U.S. and and what's very, very different?
0: Yeah. So in terms of how innovation is shifting and entrepreneurship is shifting, I mean, 20 years ago, it was primarily Silicon Valley that people looked at as the benchmark and barometer for what is best practice in launching startups. Maybe it's a bit unfair statement, but by and large, that's what the world thought. Are we seeing other parts of the world emerging in the United States globally that are setting best practices, new ways of thinking about entrepreneurship?
1: I would draw the distinction between the substance of the ventures, the, mm-hmm. the business models, the yes. value propositions for the customers, and the process of launching a business and, and managing a startup. I would say that on the first point, you know if you look at China, you know some astonishingly creative and innovative models, especially um, that leverage social networks Mm -hmm. and and social media coming out of China that can take the Western world by storm and be copied. And, you know, it's long been the case that with Japan, if this um, innovation around sort of sophisticated consumer electronics and hardware or Taiwan, you'd see the same Mm -hmm. things. So for a long time, Europe in mobile telephony, I think they lost Mm -hmm. that edge to some extent. So I, I do think the innovation is spread around I would say that there hasn't been as much innovation in how startups are managed. The big one in the last 20 years is really lean startup. And uh, of course that comes from Silicon Valley, uh, Steve Blank and Eric Ries, this Mm -hmm. notion of of, have assumptions, rigorous assumptions tested rigorously. And uh, that has spread all over the world and spread quickly. And I would say actually embedded itself more deeply in Europe than in the United States. Europeans in general have embraced design thinking more fully than uh, on average American entrepreneurs. And there's a lot of power in the combination of user experience design Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and well-structured lean startup-style testing. And so um, I, I think you will find a lot of powerful innovation coming out of Europe just because the entrepreneurs are running their venture so well.
0: Now, I know for a fact, we do have government officials who listen to our podcasts around the world, and many of them are thinking, you know, what can we do to create an environment to encourage entrepreneurship? How do we make our cities? How do you make our countries more hospitable, enticing to encourage this thing? How do we create our version of Silicon Valley or London or whichever part of the world is, do you have any insights in terms of what they should think about as they try to recruit these hubs?
1: This is a topic uh, my colleague at Harvard Business School, Josh Lerner, has yeah. thought about deeply, and he's written a book on this topic. And I'd be echoing some of his ideas more yeah. than my own, and would say that the punchline of that book is over-engineered efforts to create the Silicon Valley of X, Y, Z. Yeah, doesn't uh, work. Uh, do not work. Yes. Yeah, they they uh, they fail over and over again. It's less clear what does work. The the other thing that doesn't work is big government subsidies mm-hmm. for entrepreneurs. And, and, you know, again, given these issues of privilege that we talked about, yeah. you know, would, you'd imagine that sort of giving people grants and, and opportunities would make a big difference. What seems to work is a thriving ecosystem full of patient investors willing to uh, give their time, willing to coach. Some people will think that entrepreneurs are just born to the role that, yeah. that they can't be trained. You know, I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing for the last 24 years if, if yes. that's what I believed. <laughs> so I firmly yes. believe that, on, that uh, entrepreneurs need to know a lot about business, and, and yes. we have business schools for that reason. Uh, but there's a lot about entrepreneurship that's unique and special. So a university that brings the, the spirit of education. Uh, and a place for entrepreneurs to be trained, and then to rub shoulders with practitioners who are going to support and help them. What seems to be very, very powerful are these clusters of innovation. Mm, that's I mean, you, true. You can go back to the turn of the last century and see it in Akron, in Ohio, in, in rubber, or um, you know Pittsburgh in steel, or Detroit. And of course, the centers are changing. So, you know, Boston now is sp- pretty spectacular in life sciences and robotics. Silicon Valley has strengths in other areas. Um, Seattle has its strengths, including aerospace. And so, you know, I think what a government can do is sort of spot where those clusters are developing and very very selectively and carefully reinforce the cluster, and then entrepreneurship will follow.
0: And one example you gave of a cluster was those built around universities that have a c- certain skill in a certain area. It's not the only example, but it's one example you gave. Yeah. Other examples would be Silicon Valley, which was built around offshoots of the semiconductor industry. Yeah,
1: and, and, and so, to, to an alarming extent, uh, the Cold War investments that the Defense Department made in defense electronics. These si- Silicon Valley libertarians don't like to acknowledge the huge role of government in Silicon Valley success.
0: So what are you trying to say? We should thank the Soviet Union for Silicon Valley. Yeah. <laughs> Indeed. (laughs) Tom, it was an absolute pleasure to have you. I enjoyed that so much. I think our listeners are going to love it. Thank you very, very much. Thank you, Taker. Have a good day. We'll be in touch. Bye-bye. And that's it for today's episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I enjoyed doing the episode. Finally, I want you to remember that the only way to get access to our special offers, the only way to get our special pricing, and the only way to get samples of our content is to join the list on firmsconsulting.com.